0: Hi, before we get started on the podcast today, I want to let you know that there's a virtual Listen to My Life group starting September 10th that you can join in on. It is a fantastic experience. You'll be led through by myself, Sharon Swing, along with co-author Sybil Towner and our Director of Facilitator Development, Joan Kelly. And you'll be joined by people from all over the country or all over the world, um, going through Listen to My Life Together. You'll find out more information at onelifemaps.com. That's dot com. We're also doing another facilitator certification workshop in the Chicago area in mid-November. You'll find out more information on the website at onelifemaps.com as well. We sure hope you'll join us. It's a fantastic experience. Now, here's the podcast for today.
1: Welcome to the One Life Maps Podcast. Here's your host and co-author of Listen to My Life, maps for recognizing and responding to God in my story, Sharon Swing.
0: Greetings. We are so happy you've decided to join us for another episode of the One Life Maps Podcast. Today I have with me Daryl Smith. He's the author of a book called Faith Lies. Seven incomplete ideas that hijack faith and how to see beyond them. And Daryl is a teacher, writer, worshiper, and aspiring integral theologian, working both in the church and as the founding director of C3, an ecumenical nonprofit committed to the common good. Daryl has been exploring and at times protesting faith, religion, spirituality. For over 20 years. Well, that sounds like an interesting way to spend a life.
2: <laughs> yeah, indeed. Thank you. I'm glad to, glad to be talking to you today, Sharon.
0: Well, thanks for the time. So one of the questions I love to ask for people that I'm interviewing is, if you're willing to share with us an early recognition of God in your story.
2: Sure. Um, Probably one of the earliest that I have some grasp on um, was I was probably 13 or so in junior high, middle school age, and um, was was quite sick. And I had been sick for a while. And um, it was possible that I was in and out of hospitals and going through all kinds of tests over the period of about a year, maybe a year and a half. And, um, you know, words like cancer were being thrown around. And, it was, it was fairly terrifying. And I was, um, at that point in my life, my experience of God and faith was basically that my, my parents had, you know, dutifully dragged me to church, um, during, during my childhood. Um, and I just knew it was something that you were supposed to do. And, and God was, you know, out there and, um, we didn't really talk much and I didn't really, I just, I kind of had that childhood fear, um, very similar to what you might describe about Santa Claus or something like that. But, um, didn't really know. And just as that healthcare scare situation kind of came to its uh, pinnacle for me, I found myself, um, on a, on a cat scan, um, Bed being scanned with a needle biopsy in my chest, and seeing this needle, you know, vibrate with my with my heart as my heart pulse, which was quite uh, shocking to watch um, as a 13 year old. And the only thing I knew how to do was pray the Lord's prayer, and that's all that I had really picked up um, from a memorization standpoint at that point in my childhood. And so I just started praying the Lord's prayer over and over in my fear and terror of that situation and um, very quickly had what I would recognize then just as a calmness um, and an assurance. And as I look back on that more and more, just um, that shalom, that peace that let me know I wasn't alone, even though I felt very alone in that, um, in that room. Mm.
0: That's beautiful. And So tell me a little bit more about the faith tradition you were handed and your picture of God that you were handed.
2: Probably not too dissimilar from a lot of your listeners. Um, I was raised in the United Methodist Church, a pretty standard American Protestant um, upbringing and um, didn't really um, connect with a lot of it um, until... Other than I knew that my family was there and I love my family and I wanted to have that connection. And I made friends there and found community. Um, And so that kind of kept me connected to it. Um, But didn't really do a lot of thinking about it or talking um, to God or to others about it until... until college and, and some experiences that I had kind of forced me to start asking questions about what parts of it made sense and what parts of it didn't make so much sense.
0: So you've been an avid questioner since college or so?
2: <laughs> of, of faith. If you ask my parents, I'd say they'd probably, that I've been an avid questioner my whole life. I just didn't think to ask questions about God or divinity or ultimate reality until until college.
0: Oh, interesting. And when did you decide to become a pastor?
2: <laughs> that is a that is a fascinating question for me because it is a daily uh, decision, and um, it's a struggle for me. I'm I'm definitely called to uh, ministry, and I'm definitely called to to teach and and help create spaces. But I do struggle with the institution, um, as you kind of read in my bio. There, the institution can. Um, you know, at times really freak me out. And so, um, I would say the decision, um, early on was one that I considered in my early to mid twenties, but, um, the, I quickly was, was uh, scared away and, um, did not really do licensed, uh, ministry, just kind of stuck to prison ministry and some other, um, lay ministry that I was doing. And, um, ultimately that led me to, you know, start pursuing the education. And as I started getting education, then the church where I uh, worked uh, by that point was becoming more and more interested in me being officially licensed. And um, that's just been a push and pull relationship for the last 10 or 12 years. So um, it's, I love the church and I don't mean to imply that the institution is some kind of, you know, goblin. It's not that at all. It's just, um, it's a struggle. And I want to be very honest about that, that I think the pastorship that I, um, the pastorate that I am able to serve in and those around me is changing. And it looks different more and more each day as the church changes and the institution changes.
0: So, you chose to write a book that contained these seven incomplete ideas. How did you come to name these seven incomplete ideas that hijack faith?
2: They're really simply, they are are incomplete ideas that I ran into um, in my experience from beginning um, in that Experience that I shared with you of being a, a sick child, um, and then kind of beginning to crystallize when I became a parent myself, and um, my wife and I, our first, she had twin sons, twin boys first. We also have a daughter, but um, when our twin boys were about four, they both, um, in quick succession, had health scares, and one of them was quite serious, um, and just really brought back all of my my stuff. Um, that I had gone through when I was a sick child and um, just put me into a very um, confrontational position with God. Um, And I started there, started asking these questions to God about what I was carrying around that didn't make sense and how the God that I had been given wasn't behaving like that God should, according to the tradition and faith that I had been given. Um, which just led me to read and get into the Bible more, and then that actually led me to seminary and eventually um, education. And as I dug into uh, my studies, I more I was faced with more and more of these questions um, staring me eye to eye. And so I, I these are they they're not necessarily in the order in which I confronted them, but they they are all lies that I had to confront in my own faith. And then when, I, when it came time to write the book, I tried to write them and order them in a way that I thought connected them to each other uh, because they do, in my experience, build on each other. They're not um, disconnected lies; They're very connected.
0: They're interwoven. Yes. I would say. Absolutely. And you know, and the word lies, I mean, for a lot of people that we help with listen to my life, and as we're helping them map their life stories, and we're asking them to reflect on their images of God over time. And what's interesting to me is that a lot of people assume that it's supposed to kind of stay the same. Yeah. And they're almost there's a little bit of disconcerting angst about the fact that their picture of God is changing. Yeah. And that maybe it's allowed and maybe it's not allowed to have that happen. And all those spaces in the stages of faith that are kind of in between thinking you know what you believe, where you're not sure if you're gaining your faith or losing it. And it just seems to be a, um, a no man's land in between.
2: Yes. That's, that's very well put. Um, one of the things that I get to do, um, is lead dialogues. Um, I I work with a couple of other pastors and we, we usually host about four to five dialogues a week. Um, in and around the San Antonio area where we where we are. Some of them are in the church. Some of them are not. And um, so we get a, a good cross section. And one of them is, is at the homeless and recovery shelter for the city of San Antonio. And so it's filled with people um, who are pursuing recovery. And those conversations, our job is just to kind of create the space for people to bring um, their stories and their experiences and the things that aren't working for them but they're not sure they can lay down or is it is it a lack of faith if they lay those things down um, to those spaces and see a couple of things one that they're not alone that they're not weird that the struggles and questions and doubts that they're having others are having them Um, and that is is tremendously affirming Um, and then secondly that if we create that space and just make that time and not come in and beat each each other over the head with our doctrine and our ideas, um, that in that space, you know, in my tradition, we would say the spirit will move and um, we'll hear things if we create an opportunity to listen um, and pick up things. And you're absolutely right that that's a terrifying place to be. Um, One of the phrases that we use is that you might feel as you wrestle with some of these foundational blocks of your faith you may feel that the ground beneath you is breaking up um, and that it's your job that it's your duty as a as a person of faith to you know stomp the ground back down and don't let it break up um, and get rid of whatever is making it earthquake Um, I get that it's it is a it is a fearful activity to engage which is why we do it in community Um, and we continually point to those things that are non-negotiable in the nature of God. Um, and it's not our doctrine. It's things like love and freedom and dwelling presence. I mean, there are things that we can rest our feet upon. And so we have to come back to those and be willing to surrender the rest of it.
0: And I, I, I love, that you use the word love first.
2: Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> and that, because that is the nature of who God is,
2: without question.
0: And that it's okay to question God. It's okay to to have doubts.
2: Yes, um, our church um, is strangely. Uh, this is a phrase that we're used to having thrown at us. We're strangely Jewish. Um, so we're a Methodist church that is Hebraically rooted and we pursue our the Hebraic root of our faith. And so we act, um, according to the world around us, we act Jewish a lot, a lot. and uh, we observe Jewish feasts and we observe Jewish practices. And um, I bring that up because our Jewish brothers and sisters understand very well that to ask questions and to doubt and to wrestle is not only okay. It is required. It is it is the duty of a person of faith to wrestle with the divine, as Jacob does in Genesis. This is what we do. We wrestle with each other. We wrestle with God. We bring this stuff to the arena, as Brene Brown might say, and we deal with it. Um, it's not our job to lock it up in a box of doctrine and set it on a shelf.
0: Mm. So, Tell me a little bit more about about midrash, about that kind of conversation. What's it characterized by?
2: Well, so we practice what uh, we picked up from Solomon's Porch, which is a church in Minnesota, and our friend Tony Jones. um, And um, they call it rolling communal midrash. And rolling communal midrash to us means that the rolling piece of this is that the conversation is going to go where it's going to go and we're going to follow it. And again, in our tradition, we would say that the spirit might have something to do with where that conversation goes. And so we might have some really interesting plans and ideas about where the conversation is going to go, but it may not go there. It may go somewhere else. And so there is a fluidity to it. Um, the communal part is not also non-negotiable. We do this together. Um, my friend Chris Estes, who teaches, uh, who helps lead these dialogues and classes with me, um, he's he jokes and says we may be the only Bible study in town that will tell you to to not read your Bible. Um, and and I he says that as a joke because what we want you to do is let's read it together. Um, let's read it together and talk about it together rather than going home and reading it alone and and not having uh, the conversation about what we're reading. So um, the communal part is non-negotiable. We do this together. And then the midrash is the interpretive part. That's just the Hebraic word for um, the deeper meaning, interpretive meaning. It's doing the work of interpretation together. And um, it necessarily requires other people. And the the way that we do that is we have some guidelines. Um, When we do that, We're not there to convince anybody of anything. Um, And that goes for everybody. It's not just those that are leading the dialogue. It's anybody that's there. Um, We're there to share from our experience and listen to others' experience. And in doing so, we will get a greater vision of the whole.
0: Okay. In the midst of what you said there, you get into one of the lies about... The idea that somehow we were handed that we need to defend God. Yeah. See so a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's this scripture right that says, "Be prepared to give a defense of your faith." And we're dutiful people, um, and we we love to be Christian soldiers in the tradition that I came up in. And so we want to, you know, carry that duty. And um, we need to put that in context, I think, and back up and think about not only the context of that scripture, but also the consequence of the conclusions that we make from that. So if we, if we conclude that my job as a person of faith is to defend God, what are the consequences of that conclusion? And some of them that I try to point out or that I wrestled with myself was, well, any God that needs me to defend it is not much of a God. Um, And by the way, if that God needs my protection, we're both in trouble um, because I'm not that capable of a defender of especially beyond myself. Um, So it's just recognizing that God might be bigger than we think um, and not might not need our protection. That might not be the nature of our relationship. Why God pursues us in relationship is not to win an argument. God doesn't pursue us in relationship to build an empire. Um, God doesn't pursue us in relationship for any other reason than love. As you pointed out a minute ago, this is God's love and the desire for a loving relationship uh, with free people is what God's after. And I don't need to defend God or defend my faith. And by the way, it doesn't help Mm-hmm. Um, Dallas Willard is a favorite of mine. And one of my favorite quotes that he he said was, no one gets argued into the kingdom. We get loved there. And I just am reminded that's not my job to defend my faith or defend my doctrine or my current belief structure or even my God. My, my job, especially if I take the gospel seriously, is to love others.
0: Right. I love how you wrote that chapter, and I so appreciated that quote being included, which I love too. And the idea that when we're defending, we're probably not loving very well.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: That was that was so well said. That was lie number four, by the way. Yes. Um, I would love to know a little bit more if you wouldn't mind telling us about the content of lie number seven, real faith is blind belief.
2: Yeah. Um, I actually heard it preached one time uh, in this. I'm going to show date myself here. um, Back when Indiana Jones and the, I think it's the last crusade was a popular movie. There's this scene in that movie where he has to step out onto an invisible bridge um, he can't see that, the, that there's a bridge there, but it's like mm-hmm. an act of faith that he has to step out on there and take this blind leap. And so that's kind of what is referenced in the chapter uh, of, of lie number seven, that real faith is blind belief. And my experience just doesn't bear that out. Um, and for those that do, I haven't met anybody um, whose experience bears that out yet, but I'm not ruling it out. Um, I just I'm glad it's not me. Um, I, that just seems so much um, harder than what God has called me to. I I call them in the book, I call, I call them instead of blind leaps, obscured steps. I do occasionally have to take some obscured steps toward um, either what the scripture has told me is a good direction or what my tradition or my community is telling me a good direction. I might not clearly know, um, but I kind of step out take one step in that direction. And the truth is I didn't take that step first. God was already there. God took that step first and I didn't step somewhere where God is not. Wherever I step, even if it's an obscured step, I'm stepping with God. The creator of all things is there already. Um, And so we're not called into these jumping off of cliffs to demonstrate our faith. Um, That's just not the experience of the God that I have. And I do think that this is the lie. There's a reason this is lie seven for me in the book, because this is this is a hard one. And, and it takes the work of coming through all of the rest of the lies to actually tackle this one, because it permeates everything. And it's in our faith in lots of little intricate ways that we don't necessarily recognize. I don't think I'm clear of this lie yet. I think I'm still working through it. I think I'm still going to be working through it for the rest of my life. Um, but this idea... That somehow my belief is what makes the thing real, or my belief or my ability to not have doubt is what makes the thing powerful. And that's, that just could not be more opposite the biblical narrative, and it could not be more opposite my experience of God. At the times when my faith has been the weakest, when my belief has been the worst, God was more real um, and more present to me. It's, it's not my belief that makes God real.
0: I remember someone saying one time, believe it into being.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I just thought to myself, I don't think I can do that.
2: Yeah. And if, and if, if that's what's going <laughs> to make so this, many levels, right? Yeah. if That's, what's going to make this thing go. We're in trouble. Um, I need, I needed the power. I need the, the love to radiate from some place that I don't have. Um, I need it to come from a place, a power greater than myself. Um, and you, you're referencing one of the, the metaphors or images that I use in the book is from that movie, the polar express. And I love that movie. My kids love that movie. I'm not trying to run down the polar express for the fans out there, but that's the, the idea behind that movie is that, The children in that movie are given a sleigh bell. And if you believe in Santa Claus, the sleigh bell rings. And if you don't believe in Santa Claus, the sleigh bell is hollow and it makes no noise. And so it's your belief that makes the thing real. And that works really well for Christmas and Santa. It does not work really well for the source of all things.
0: Mm. And I mean, just speaking of sorting out your story when it comes to Santa Claus, my sister tells a story about when she found out that Santa Claus wasn't real. Yeah. she also quickly put the Easter Bunny and God into that category.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean that's um, because of my wife and I both working for the church, our kids never picked up an Easter Bunny um, story. just we just didn't have time. We were always working on Easter Sunday, but when we when my sons found out about Santa Claus, they very quickly took it to Jesus. I mean, and and my wife and I were shocked. We thought we were, you know, just strapping in for a conversation about Santa Claus and, you know, St. Nicholas and taking and giving gifts and that. And all of a sudden they're like, well, is Jesus real? And we had, <laughs> it was
0: like, what other kind of lies have you
2: told Yes, me? it was terrifying. I was just like, oh, we are not doing this right. If we have told these two stories. And we hold these two stories the same way. That's a problem.
0: Mm. And, you know, I think that some of these things are lies that we pick up very honestly and we just come by them honestly. What can I say? And our parents pass down stories to us that they've been handed that maybe they haven't f- sorted out.
2: Yes, absolutely. I could not give more.
0: so it's not like people have, you know, um, intentionally and deceptively told us lies that we've taken in. Absolutely. There, there are all kinds of misperceptions that need to be sorted out here.
2: Yes, and I, I try to lay that out really clearly in in the opening pages of the book that there is no conspiracy theory here. There's no we're not going to look back um, throughout history and where some of these ideas came into our faith and find villains. They're not there. What we're going to look back is we're going to if we look back we're going to find people doing the best that they could with the understanding and revelation that they had at that time. And then see other people picking that revelation up and codifying it. And even those people that codify and turn things into doctrine and do lock them away in boxes and put them on shelves, so to speak, they're still just faithful people doing the best that they could. We're not looking to blame any of this on anyone because that's not our responsibility anyway. We have agency. We have freedom. We are responsible for what we carry. And how we carry it, and so looking back and trying to blame this on some conspiracy or some uh, villain in our in our history is not going to help anybody.
0: And I think, as I look back over my spiritual history and my parents' spiritual history, and I'll, I think there might have been some lazy thinking, but not intentional deception.
2: Okay, I like that.
0: And. Um, and homegrown pastors doing the best they could to shepherd a flock. Yes. Yes. And I also just think that particular verses being elevated above others and getting the values out of whack in terms of love being way down the list as opposed to the, top priority in how we read everything.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that's the other side of that coin, right? Just because we look back and don't find villains um, or a conspiracy doesn't mean we haven't made mistakes. We have. We've clearly made mistakes. Some of them have been epic. Some of them have been genocidal. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't want to like be flippant about the history of the Christian faith or the history of any of the monotheistic faiths. It's We have a problematic history of people doing the best that they could, and that includes mistakes and bad ideas and misunderstandings. Um, But the reason that we would look at that and that we would dig into that context and get that understanding is not to pile on them. Um, Mm -hmm. one One of the things that my rabbi always tells me is the imitation of the Bible, the imitation of the faith, the imitation of this wrestling match is not to hold up a lens to anyone else. It's to hold a mirror up to me. I can only Mm -hmm. work on myself. I can only recognize this struggle in myself. So I don't, you know, I can look at those mistakes and get in touch with, well, why did my grandma tell me that story that way and teach me that theological conclusion? That was, that was not helpful. Um, But as I process that, the point of that is to see what it's doing in me. What did that idea do in me? What's it doing in me now? And what should I do with it now?
0: Right. And I think also there's a piece of this when you talk about just American history and what was done to twist the gospel to justify, let's say, slavery Yeah. or... Back further in history to justify someone needing to buy indulgences to buy um, absolution from sin,
2: right, or buy a relative out of hell. It,
0: exactly yeah. that there were that there were malicious motives involved. Yeah, the justification of things in the past that we still have to rid ourselves from somewhere along the way. To be able to look back at that and say, "Is there any way that I'm using
2: Scripture to justify something in me?" Oh, that's very well said. Um, that that is that is very well said, and that that's the tough act of examine um, in the in the tradition of the spiritual spiritual disciplines is is where am I? Um, you know, show me, O oh Lord, where this is happening in me, and that is a extremely vulnerable question uh, to ask and a risky question to ask, um, because you'll, you'll probably get the answer. Um, Mm. and it's, and it will be uncomfortable. Um, but it has purpose, that growth and that change and that, that discomfort has purpose of transforming us and, uh, bringing us to new understanding.
0: Yes. Oh my goodness. And to be able to have these conversations with grace is such a, profoundly important, uh, concept in the midst of all this.
2: I could not agree more. Um, and we have to start that grace with self-grace. It has to start with Mm -hmm. grace for ourselves. Um, we are not going to have grace to give anyone else of any, uh, supply if we do not have that for ourselves. So we have to develop those tools and it might take some time, um, to get to that. It takes, Uh, A lot of, in a lot of the experiences that I've had, it it takes a community gathered around a person seeing that and modeling it for them um, to, before they begin to pick up, oh, I can, I can forgive myself for thinking these things, for acting this way, um, for having these thoughts that I'm not the weirdo. I'm not the only person on the planet that does this. There have been others. And, Mm-hmm. And, I'm,
0: and that's related to lie number two. God is angry and, I, and doesn't like me, especially when I sin.
2: Yeah, that's a big one. That's a tough one for us. There's, there's so much of the angry God um, is, you know, can't stand to be in your presence until you're washed in the blood of the Lamb um, kind of idea rolling around out there. Um, it's the, you know, it's the ideas locked up in the doctrine of original sin. Um, and I, I realize even now as I'm talking to you and your listeners that, that that could be a potentially destabilizing, um, idea. So I don't want to be flipping about that. I would just, um, encourage people to examine the opening pages of our story, the opening poem, uh, of Genesis one and two that tells us that God looks upon all creation and doesn't utter, um, an original curse. It's an original blessing. He looks on exactly. us and says it is good. And it's actually the narrative of the Christian faith that God so loves humans, so loves humanity, um, thinks it's so good to be a human that God becomes a human God self, um, in the person of Jesus, the Christ. So this shouldn't be um, as destabilizing, destabilizing as it can be. But I, I recognize um, that just a, a couple of words from me in a podcast is probably not honoring um, the weight that this lie carries. So I would just encourage people that are struggling with that idea, that think God doesn't like them, um, doesn't love them, that God couldn't possibly love them if God knows how they really are. Um, I would just encourage, he
0: does know how they really are and he loves them.
2: I agree. I agree. I would just encourage exactly. that conversation to go into community and let's, let's start talking about that. Let's get some people around us and start talking about our experience of God.
0: Right. It's it, it, shame is so prevalent and it is what needs to be abolished sometimes, Right there with sin, you know. It, it, we're told about stories of of God needing to take away our sin, but shame is included in that too.
2: Oh sure, yes. I mean, and and there's a difference, right, between guilt and shame. And and as I've learned from my recovery brothers and sisters, there's even um, uh, a difference between healthy shame and toxic shame. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I. I act in ways that I am ashamed of. You know, I I say things that when I calm down, um, I'm ashamed that I said them. And that kind of shame can be instructive. That kind of shame can help me recognize, well, what got triggered in me? Why did I go there? You know, what was going on? Why did I react that strongly? Um, And that's back to that that discipline of examine. I'm doing the work. Um, Versus toxic shame that says um, I am the sin rather than I I did the sin I am, right. I am the mistake rather than I made the mistake
0: right so I am the mistake being shame I made a mistake being guilt just to be clear on that great yeah so let's just run through as in conclusion, Why don't you give us the seven lies and maybe a sentence or two just to give people a taste of just how weighty and meaty this book is not a light read, but definitely a thought provoking one and worth the journey and your goal. I love how you write it because your goal here isn't to try to convince People that they need to agree with you, nope. but to stir up that kind of of conversation with you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what delights me to think about is the possibility that somebody gets this book somewhere and it leads them to go um, argue with other people. I know that sounds it might sound weird, but arguing is a good thing. Go talk it out. Go, you know, gather around a meal and and just chew on one of these lies together and see where it goes um but to answer your question the first lie is the that the bible is only the literal word of god um and i purposely put that word only in there because i do understand that there are those that um will want to say that parts of that bible are literally god speaking and and i feel that way myself um but um I also want us to consider the possibility that um, some of those words, not the possibility, let me rephrase that. I want us to connect with the reality that some of those words are people speaking to God. You know, we, we And we know this. The, the, they're called the writings. Those aren't God speaking to us. Those are us speaking to God. Um, and it's just as informative and transformative. So um, it's just connecting with the idea that the Bible is not divine dictation that people God has chosen to always involve people in the process um, that we're part of experiencing the story telling the story writing the story interpreting the story um, the second lie is that God as you already mentioned is God is angry and doesn't like me especially when I sin um, and and that's that bad idea that actually treats God like Santa Claus like God's up there keeping a naughty list and a nice list and instead of toys and lumps of coal what we're dealing with is our eternal um, resting place so um, God's not a cosmic scorekeeper God the primary metaphor that we are given in both the biblical record and the tradition of our faith is that God is a loving parent Um, and that can be hard of us hard for some of us to wrap our minds around if we don't have an experience of a loving parent uh, on earth that can be hard um, but it's it's worth exploration regardless. Um, the third lie is that the devil is God's counterpart, um, and that's just this. It's the the lie of dualism, the idea that that uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the good God, and that the devil is somehow the bad God, and that there's some kind of scales or balance or cosmic battle between them. Um, And while the Bible and our tradition have a lot to say about Satan and none of it is consistent, um, what is consistent is that whatever Satan is, however we understand Satan, it's not God's equal. It is not the balance to God. There is only one God, and and it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the God of Jesus the Christ, and it is for you. Um, the fourth lie is I am supposed to protect and defend God and my faith. We talked about that a little bit already. Uh, it's just relieving ourselves of the burden of thinking that what we're called to do as, as people of faith is protect God or protect our faith. Um, or
0: that it's useful.
2: Yeah, or that that helps anybody. Um, the fifth lie is that there's one right way to believe and one right way to behave. This is the lie of orthodoxy. Um, this is the lie that we um, decide what the correct box is, and then we go around comparing my box to your box and um, deciding you know, why you're a heretic and, and my faith is pure. This is why we have so many different denominations and churches and arguments, and um, this is the kind of stuff that fills the nightly news, you know, as, as we... Say my my right way is is better than your right way, and it's just not what we're given. Um, again, in our biblical record or in the tradition of our faith, um, there are there is a record of things that have been helpful, practices and ideas that have been helpful, um, but they are paths of righteousness, plural. They're not one path of righteousness. Um, Lie Sixth is the the idea that faith is a private matter, that this is just between me and Jesus or just between me and God, and it has nothing to do with you um, or my community or my church or my neighbor or my enemy, and nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, We do not get to relate to the ultimate source by ourselves, independent of every other created being. We do this work together. Our God is a communal God. If you're from the tradition that I am, we believe God is triune, um, the Trinity. And so God is communal. We come from community. We are called to community, and our community needs us. So we have to do this stuff together. And then lie seven, real faith is blind belief. We already spoke of um, just that idea that we have to, you know, lock our brains away. And not do any thinking or critical analysis or doubting um, is counter to what we're actually called to. We're actually called to bring all that stuff to the arena and deal with it and trust that in doing so, we're actually going to gain more understanding and more revelation.
0: That is a great summary. (laughs) All right. So tell people how they can get a hold of Faith Lies.
2: Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, uh, any, any normal, um, place where mediocre books like this are sold. Um, so you know you can find it through there. Um, and then if you, you can also go to the website, which is darylsmith.org.
0: Oh, we so appreciate that. Do you have any, um, events or ways people can get in touch with you?
2: Uh, the website's the best way to get in touch with me. All of the various um, social media things are there. So if you're looking for Instagram, Facebook, or any of Twitter, or any of that, you can connect with me there through the website. Um, and events, I am I'm coming into a summer, and I'm almost to a period of rest. So there is nothing uh, planned until the mid to late August, and I'm kind of happy about that.
0: Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Well, congratulations on your book. We so appreciate you joining us. And I hope it's thought provoking for people to consider sorting out their faith and what to take with them and what to leave behind and really how it impacts these, these thoughts and perspectives and lies affect our way of being in the world. Yes. I think that's what I took away most profoundly from what you wrote. And I really appreciate that.
2: Well, thank you so much. And Sharon, thank you for having me on your podcast. It was a delight to speak with you. And I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Mm, Thank you so much. We would appreciate it all. Uh, Everyone, if you would go ahead and rate And comment and share uh, the One Life Maps podcast with your friends and family. I think that uh, this particular conversation could be very shareable in order to be able to get a conversation going, maybe a small group to get this book and have a great conversation to sort it out. Those of you who have mapped their life story with Listen to My Life, to be able to take this book and then look at that bottom line on the My Life Story Map about noticing God and how your perceptions of God have changed over time and what you've been handed and what you want to do with that in this point in your faith and what you're noticing changing about your way of being in the world and your ability to love and listen well. So thank you all so much for joining us today. Join us next week. and We'll have another great episode for you then. Thanks so much. Take care, Daryl. Thanks again. Thank
1: you. Have you thought, I don't know myself anymore? Have you wondered, is there something more? Are you at a crossroads in life and asking, which way will lead me toward expressing more of who I am made to be? Are you looking for a way to understand the restlessness you feel inside? Are you seeking a deeper spiritual life and desire to rediscover who you are through God's eyes? If you've wondered any of these things before, you're ready for the life mapping experience of Listen to My Life. Go to onelifemaps.com to purchase your portfolio of visual life maps. While you're there, check out our upcoming virtual coaching groups, live workshops, and options for you to facilitate the Listen to My Life experience with others. That's onelifemaps.com. O-N-E-L-I-F-E-M-A-P-S dot com.